With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Scatter downpour is expected. Quiet, please, ladies and gentlemen. You ready for the big show? Right. In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. Is the Lars Larson Show. Never apologize for being patriotic. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. And now... Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. I am very grateful to the individuals who have stepped up. I'm also trying hard to control my outrage because this presentation contained nothing of substance. Wow, what a surprise. That is Multnomah County Commissioner Sharon Myron, and she's upset. She says she's actually angry, and remember, she's a woke Democrat. What's she angry about? The fact is, a few weeks ago, the governor of Oregon decided to declare a fentanyl emergency. And a few weeks later, what's happened? I mean, in an emergency, you move heaven and earth. You make sure that anything that can be done about that problem gets done. That's why emergencies are often called after earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, other kinds of civil disasters. So when you have an emergency, people are all hands on deck. And you go out, you get the job done. And here is one of the woke liberals who you'd ordinarily expect to sing the praises of people like Governor Tina Kotek. And she's saying, hey, there's nothing happening. You've delivered us a status report saying, yep, still a pretty bad problem. And then just today on President's Day 2024, we find out that Oregon now leads the nation. Now, unfortunately, a lot of you, like me, have become accustomed to the idea that when you hear that Oregon leads the nation, it's not in anything good. I mean, oftentimes, if you lead the nation in research, if you lead the nation in Nobel Prizes, if you lead the nation in job availability or housing affordability or any of those things, that's all good. But lately, Oregon and Washington seem to be, you know, frickin' frack when it comes to leading the nation in bad stuff. And what's the latest bad stuff? Oregon is now seeing the highest fentanyl overdose death increase in America in the last five years. Again, I would say that's not a good thing. Apparently for Democrats, as long as it's connected to big campaign contributions, they don't care. I mean, if people are piling up in body bags, they really don't care. And just to give you a little perspective on it, and I'll cite the uh, Daily Dead Fish Rapper, Oregon Live, in 2019, five years ago, 
the number of fentanyl overdose deaths in the state of Oregon in an entire month, 12 months, was 77. 70, less than 100 people died. Now, that's still serious. It's, a se it's 77 human beings whose lives have been extinguished. But where has that number gone in the last five years? It has gone from 77 into an estimated, estimated 1,268 fentanyl deaths. I mean, it's gone up by more than a thousand percent, a thousand percent in a 12 month period. And all of that, why? There are some very clear cut reasons. We know the why of this. And I'll talk about that. And I'll talk about the connection to campaign contributions in just a moment. First, welcome to President's Day on the Radio Northwest Network. It's a pleasure to be with you as always. And if you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we're going to put you first in line. You just kind of have to have your act together, have your uh, arguments all lined up, and be ready to answer a couple of tough questions from me. If you're ready for that, you want to be a naysayer, 866-439-5277. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, you can always vote in our poll on X. Should a non-citizen be in charge of you know, or or have a vote in running elections. And I would say no to that crazy idea. And where is that crazy idea coming from? Well, it hasn't arrived in the Northwest just yet, but it is in San Francisco. You see, San Francisco has a city elections commission. Now, elections are defined by state law and to a very tiny extent by federal law and the U.S. Constitution. Why they need an elections commission, I don't understand. But they have an elections commission. And all the way through history, San Francisco has always had, understandably, the people who are citizens and able to vote serve on the elections commission. But now San Francisco is number one in one way. They have decided for the first time in American history to put a non-citizen who can't even vote to put Kelly Wong on their elections commission. And you say, what about Kelly Wong? What do we know about her? Well, she's been here since 2019. She is a Chinese national. So I guess that fits in well with Joe Biden's Trader Joe's. You know, the White House is now known as Trader Joe's, where everything is for sale. And he's very good friends with his Chinese communist buddies in Beijing. So San Francisco thought, what would possibly be wrong with, with putting somebody on the city's elections commission who, number one, is not a citizen, number two, is forbidden by law from voting, and number three, is advocating for people who are not citizens to be able to vote. She's actually quoted as saying that she is going to work hard to make sure that people get to vote in America without regard to their immigration status, meaning that's translated in woke speak for illegal aliens. So, She's not able to vote. She's on the Elections Commission, and she has now been sworn in on that commission with high praise from the city's Board of Supervisors, what they call the City Council, but they know it as the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco. High praise for Kelly Wong, especially her ability to engage and enfranchise people and help non-citizens become citizens. Well, there's a dirty little secret in that, and that is... If you come here illegally, there is no legal way to become a citizen, period. 
If you come here as a green card holder and you emigrate legally, you can become a citizen. If you come here and you come here illegally, you can't become a citizen under federal law. But let me get back to the fentanyl desk because it's great to be able to hear somebody like Multnomah County Commissioner Sharon Myron who's complaining about the fact that the governor says, well, I got this political problem, a whole bunch of people are dying from fentanyl, and we Democrats approve that. Now, I know the voters voted it through by a 58% margin, but why? Because George Soros Drug Policy Alliance, located on the East Coast, decided to use Oregon as a test tube. And in that test tube, they perform experiments, and the subject of the experiments is you, ladies and gentlemen. They are using you as the guinea pigs in this experiment. And how's that experiment working out? Well, they pumped in about five or six million dollars into a campaign, a political campaign, to convince Oregonians, if you vote for this, we will legalize hard drugs, and we can't possibly imagine anything going wrong with that. Well, the rest of us did. I argued against it at the time it was up for a vote. I'm not an Oregon voter, so I didn't get a vote in it. But that's okay. So the voters said, yeah, sure, legalize hard drugs. What could possibly go wrong? Well, as I just detailed, 77 overdose deaths five years ago, 1,268 ending in September of last year. And in the coming 12 months, probably 1,300, maybe even 15 or 1,600 people dying. I mean... If George Soros and his liberal buddies are willing to give sufficient campaign contributions to the likes of Tina Kotek and liberal members of the Oregon legislature, as long as those campaign checks cash, they don't care how high the body bag pile gets. It's a Monday. It's President's Day. Your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our poll on X. Should a non-citizen be in charge of running elections? And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges, but how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Broadcasting the sound of freedom, here's Lars Larson. That makes a lot of sense, a lot of nonsense. Right, your body well right, you know you got a right to say.
This is the Northwest Nonsense. How much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense? That great moment every day where Lars brings you the cold, hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the daily dead fish wrapper or mainstream media bias. Punishing people based on their skin color is illegal and immoral. So when the Portland public schools decide to punish children based on their race and gender, you'd think the world's gone crazy. Student violence has skyrocketed in Portland public schools. Not long ago, one middle school was actually closed for three weeks because of fights on campus. Kids bring guns and knives to school. Videos of unprovoked assault show up on social media. So Portland schools did exactly the opposite of what makes common sense. They expelled the school police. They dropped discipline to a minimum and they hoped for the best. Well, hope is not a strategy. Now schools decide that discipline for students should be based on, I kid you not, race, gender identity, and trauma, whatever that means. I guess you can make it mean whatever you want it to mean. The woke folks who run this mess don't like the fact that when they enforce the rules equally, more black and brown students get punished. I might point out that more male students get punished than females. Does that mean there's a gender bias? No, it means boys get in trouble more than girls. And it happens for adults as well. If you haven't noticed, 90% of prison inmates in America and in Oregon and in Washington and in Idaho, 90% of them are male. Does that mean the court system is biased against males? Or does it mean males commit more crimes? Not only that, but the school district has set strict limits on the race of teachers. I kid you not. They have declared who teaches at which school depends on their skin color. If you're the wrong color or sex or gender identity, you can't transfer to another school. And that's for teachers, not the students. Now, does that sound sensible to you? I'd love to hear a naysayer defend that kind of nonsense. Or does it sound like an illegal racist policy? So the group called Parents Defending Education has filed a formal complaint under the Federal Civil Rights Act of 1964. Do you still want to send your kids into that kind of mess? Or find a school that actually teaches reading, writing, and arithmetic and then actually requires it to get a diploma? From Twitter... The mayor of Kansas City is now upset because because the governor of Missouri has called the gunman, the one who's the ones who shot 22 people last week and killed one man. He called them thugs. The mayor isn't upset that the thugs shot the kids. He's not upset that the thugs killed a mother. The mayor is upset because somebody called a thug a thug. And as far as I'm concerned, I've been using that term for a long time. I don't use it to apply to any particular person because of their race. I use it to apply it to them because of their behavior. If you engage in thuggish, violent, criminal behavior, I'm going to call you a thug. And our question of the day, should we spend 200 million bucks studying high-speed rail for the Pacific Northwest when the region's terrain keeps reminding us that even keeping a current low-speed rail train running is very, very tough? Service on the Amtrak Cascades trains between Portland and Seattle resumed yesterday morning after being suspended last Thursday night due to a landslide. We sincerely appreciate your continued patience and understandings. No, I don't understand it at all. The fact is, they keep having the same line closed down at about the same spot because the earth keeps sliding there. I mean, you'd think they'd be able to figure it out. If you don't come up with a long-term solution, 
if you can't run the low-speed rail up and down that uh, those tracks, then how in the world are you going to run multi-billion-dollar high-speed rail? Can you imagine what happens when a train going 150 miles an hour runs into a landslide? You can only imagine. It looks like something Hollywood would have come up with. And now today's Daily Grill. Insane. Are you Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe they're just really, really stupid. Find out right now. I want to give a uh, daily grill today to both the Seattle Times and the New York Times. The New York Times wrote the story. The Seattle Times published it under a headline that I'm reasonably sure came from somebody at the Seattle Times. And the headline is, Swallowed Up by the Madness of the Border. Now, what they're talking about is this massive invasion of illegal aliens. Only if you say ranches have been beset by an invasion of illegal aliens sponsored by President Joe Biden, well, that's not, not going to go over in newsrooms like the ones you find at the Seattle Times, the New York Times. They talk about it as though it's a natural phenomenon that you've been swallowed up by an earthquake or swallowed up by a tsunami or swallowed up by the after effects of a hurricane. No, this is the homes of actual Americans that have been invaded by millions of illegal alien criminals, including but not limited to drug and child traffickers, convicted criminals and suspected terrorists. Now, it was a conscious decision that was made by Open Borders Joe Biden. Ninety-four executive orders in the first few months of his presidency that he signed. This was not an accident. Joe didn't get hit by bad luck. He decided to make this happen. It is now hurting people. And the best the politically correct journalists of the Seattle Times and the New York Times can do is say, swallowed up by the madness of a border as though it's a natural phenomena. Today's best email, but you can always send more to talk at LarsLarson.com. It was actually a note that I was copied on. It was written to a board of directors. Lars, or to Jim Kelly and his fellow board members, three mills have now shut down in recent weeks. My guess is others are struggling to see what's going to happen. This is happening all over the Northwest. He writes, jobs are not a dime a dozen. In the last year, the homeless has gone from 15,000 to 20,000 statewide. That doesn't include the illegals or either in slave camps, oh, sorry, illegal pot grows, or in hotels that taxpayers fund to house them. The 2021 legislature gave $21 million to seek these camps out. That's $500,000 per county. That'll buy three patrol deputies. The average cost of a murder investigation is about 150000 The grant money's been used up, and we've only scratched the surface of the criminal impact on our communities. This legislature has $27 million for an arts grant, but not one penny to sheriffs, while cartels are killing people with drugs and violence. The sheriff will spend a bunch of money investigating while the public wants answers. 250 essential services wanting funding at a time when people can't afford basic housing. And you're now seeking to be subsidized while you lock up 50 percent, sorry, 57 percent of the Oregon Department of Forestry managed timberlines, timberlands. How is that going to work out for you? Everybody laughs at National Forest Service Management. In truth, the public is so offended by government mismanagement, I'm surprised that loggers haven't assembled a Cajun Navy like a first responder strike force while the NSF lets fires burn eight days before they address them. Signed, Mark. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Let me go quickly to Sarah. Hey, Sarah, happy President's Day. What's on your mind today? Hi, Lars. 
Um, I'm calling about a uh, harm reduction organization in Southern Oregon called the Sabin Wagon, run by Melissa Jones. Yep. Melissa Jones has received, uh, well, almost $200,000 for passing out supplies in our parks. That's supplies to take about. illegal drugs, right? Yes. Uh, booty bump kits, and if you don't know what that is, look it up. Have your people look it up. Tourniquets. Um, all, all different types of things. She is now in a lawsuit with the city of Medford. Uh, yep. She the rest of the summer, of course. She's got an ACLU attorney out of Battleground, Washington. I'll tell you what, we're going to follow up on that, sir, and I appreciate the heads up. We have talked about the stabbing wagon before. Back in a moment. The Lars Larson Show. Because you like what you hear, right? Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. 24 years now we've served the Pacific Northwest. We intend to do it probably for at least another 24. Glad to get your calls, too, at 866-HEY-LARS. And I'll get back to those calls in a moment, maybe even a naysayer on President's Day today. But first, I want to talk to our friend Todd Myers, who's the Environmental Director of the Washington Policy Center, about fish. Hey, Todd, how are you? I am great. Happy President's Day. Happy President's Day to you as well. You know, it's it's frustrating because I see governments all the time in both states, Oregon and Washington. You focus more north of the Columbia, and I'm, you know, both sides. But they, they're always talking about how we're going to do this to save the salmon. And they use it, they seem to use it, and global warming and a lot of other things, as the be-all, end-all excuse for just about any kind of money they want to spend. And yet you've you've taken uh, on the task of tracking how they actually do this and whether or not they get anything done. Uh, are they getting anything done about the, the goal of trying to uh, bolster the salmon populations of the Northwest? Well, the most generous way to put it is, is that their record is mixed. Uh, my feeling is, is that their rhetoric doesn't match their actions. Um, so this year there's a number of bills on the Washington State Legislature that would um, help salmon increase their populations. Um, salmon in Puget Sound particularly, but across the state, have not been doing well. And in particular, Sound uh, in Puget Sound, rather, Chinook have actually declined in population between 2004 and 2019, despite everything that we've done. Now, there's a variety of reasons for that, but it indicates that we need to do something different. And so there were bills, and actually most of them were sponsored by Republicans that would streamline efforts to um, recover salmon so we weren't wasting money on bureaucracy and things like that. And most of those bills um, have died um, in the legislature, which is, of course, controlled by the, the Democrats in both chambers. And that's really frustrating. And the budgets, actually, the proposed budget, supplemental budgets have come out today. And the operating budget, where they spend about $1.8 billion extra um, in total, uh, a fraction of a percent, I think something like 0.2% of that goes to salmon. So they they talk a lot, but when it comes to actually passing legislation, and it's not just spending more money, but actually, you know, reducing uh, bureaucracy and things like that, you just don't see the actions to match the rhetoric about how important salmon are. 
Well, uh, can you give my audience some practical examples? When pre, you know their friends bring this up, and they say, "Well, it's the dams killing the salmon, and we just have to rip yeah. the dams out." That's still an active argument about the Snake River dams. I don't buy the argument. And in fact, Todd, I got an, an email the other day from a guy saying, "Hey." Why don't we just build fish ladders on the Snake River dams? And I thought, well, maybe I'll trust my memory. No, that's dumb. I should actually look it up again. But I thought I knew the answer. Turns out I was right. There are fish ladders there. And I wrote back to the guy and I said, they already have fish ladders there. Uh, so it's a great idea, but they did it in the 1960s. So, you know, half a century of, of that has gone by. That's already there. But there, are, but give my audience some of the things that could be done very easily and very effectively about this problem. Well, I'll give you one very simple one, which is to reduce the number of salmon that are killed by seals and sea lions. Uh, seals and sea lions kill a huge amount of salmon. In fact, the Washington State Academy of Sciences put out a report last year saying that um, to some extent, even if we do the habitat and other things that increase populations, uh, a fair number of those salmon just go into the, the tummies of seals and sea lions and that seals and sea lion populations are larger now than they were 200 years ago <laughs> because when tribes were around, they would hunt seals and sea lions. We can't. So that was the most amazing thing to me. So it's as simple as things like that. There is a bill that passed, which is great, which studies um, bird, avian predation on uh, salmon, which is another big thing. So there are things we can do that have an immediate impact without having to spend massive amounts of money destroying dams and harming the economy. Um, but we haven't taken any action on dealing with seals and sea lions more broadly. And while a study is good, you know, still action is years away. So I think that, you know, there are other things, but I, those are I, those are very simple ones that we could start with that would have an immediate impact. Well, I want to know, the second one that I bring up all the time, and again, Todd, uh, like Katenji Brown-Jackson says, I'm not a biologist, but I've always thought that hatcheries <laughs> made a lot of sense. And they say, oh, no, those produce uh, frankenfish. And I said, aren't they producing yeah. them from the same milt and the same eggs as the native salmon? Yes, but they're not mixed up enough. And they, uh, you know, they get sort of a, a, a monoculture. And I said, okay, you can fix that, can't you? I mean, I don't know a lot of ranchers who breed their entire herd off the same bull all the time. They mix it up a bit. So they get, you know, whatever, whatever desirable characteristics they want. Well, we don't want human hands to be touching that kind of thing, so we don't want to do it. But wouldn't hatcheries, especially if you released the fish at the right time, just populate the rivers with a gigantic number of salmon? In fact, there there's two things. I, and I think that the concerns about hatcheries are legitimate, albeit overblown. One of them is what you just said, which is you don't want to release all of the salmon, hatchery salmon, at the same time the wild fish are there because what happens is there's only a limited amount of forage. And if you do it all at once, that's a problem. But they know that. Hatchery managers are not stupid. They know to do that, and they've begun doing it. The second is genetics, which is the first thing you mentioned, which is you want to breed biodiversity so that they can deal with a variety of different things. Again, they know that. But you will like this. I talked with one tribal hatchery manager about that issue, 
And he said that they actually are, he feels that they are violating the Endangered Species Act because they are doing genetic work to create biodiversity that is probably illegal under the Endangered Species Act. So again, it is government regulation that is preventing doing things. But Todd, can I point something out? Uh, One of the big objections to bringing wolves back to the Pacific Northwest, because they were gone for the better part of 75 years, is they said the wolves they're bringing back are not genetically the same as the wolves that were here when you know Europeans first arrived in this region. Now, I'm assuming that's correct. Again, I'm not like Katenji Brown-Jackson. I'm not a biologist. But isn't that the case that we introduce species, say, look, we're repopulating the wolves, except it's not the same wolves that were here before. It's bigger, hardier wolves that tend to take down more deer and elk. So if it's wrong to do it, if it's okay to do it with the wolves, but it's not okay to do it with the fish, how does that make any sense? I think it doesn't, and that's and that's why tribes who have more political leeway and who and who count on salmon for their economics for you know tribal and customary practices, they have a very strong interest in making sure that salmon runs are strong and doing that kind of um, work to make sure that salmon are robust and biodiverse. Again and again, though, what we see is that the barriers come from government, not from the actual salmon recovery experts who are on the ground who want to see salmon populations increase. We need to give them more leeway rather than have everything come from Washington, D.C. and Olympia. And could we very inexpensively get rid of a lot of seals and sea lions and maybe control that population by just issuing tags? Because I've talked to tribal members before and interviewed them on that subject, and they said, oh, we love hunting seals and sea lions. And you know what they do with the meat? They don't always eat it. They said it sells for a premium price in Japan. I said, okay, good for you. And the guy, the guy literally was a young guy. He said, literally, he says, I could use some money for Christmas. We happen to be talking to him in October. And he says, they ought to let us go out there and just hunt these things and bring the population down to a, you know, to a fairly, you know, to a, to, to a lion's roar. You know, bring it down just a little bit so that we could do that. Todd, where can people find resources at WPC? Go to WashingtonPolicy.org, or you can follow me on Twitter at at WaPolicyGreen. We will give updates during the legislative session and all year long. And it's cold, so your bees are still asleep right now? <laughs> they, they are. I checked on them, but they, they are snug and warm in their, in their hive for now. Hopefully they will be out soon. Todd Myers is an amateur beekeeper as well as being a great advocate at the Washington Policy Center. Back in a moment, I'll get to your phone calls and emails. we got a great new offering from our parody guy, Jim Gossett. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com. 
view the videos, and then let the 1031 Exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Simply by listening, you're proving how smart you really are. Lars thanks you. Love Tisha James Should hang her head in shame She thinks that she can take us For a fool Her phony case was an absolute disgrace She is just another sorrow's tool Oh, Latisha We know Biden besieged ya On appeal Trump's gonna beat ya That award, it will be tossed Welcome back to the oh. Lars Larson Show. That's our friend Jim Gossett, the parody guy. And he's talking about the case where we got the final uh, decision from the judge on Friday in which he said Donald Trump is now no longer allowed to do business in the city of New York or in the state of New York for the next three years. That was punishment number one. Punishment number two, he is required to pay a $350 million fine for his conviction in a fraud case in which nobody actually got defrauded. And in fact, the people who were supposed to be the victims of this defraud or fraud were the banks. And the banks testified, hey, we uh, we loaned him money before. We weren't unhappy. He paid the money back, and we want to loan him money again. Those are supposedly the victims of this fraud. But number three, I've had a lot of people emailing me, and I'll just answer you here. Number one, is he allowed to appeal? Yes. Will he appeal? Yes. Is he likely to win the appeal and have the punishment de downgraded from $350 million to something less, perhaps even zero? Absolutely, he's allowed to do that. However, one caveat. To be able to appeal within 30 days, he must come up with either the fine and pay it, or he has to put up a bond for $450 million. And you say, well, Trump's worth two, three, maybe even $4 billion. Can he borrow that much money? Sure. Uh, but he is required to borrow it from a bank because he's not allowed to borrow the money from any bank, not only banks located in New York State, but banks that do any business in New York State are not allowed to do business with Donald Trump. He's not allowed to borrow from them. So he has to quickly come up with a bond for $450 million to be able to appeal. And then the appeal is likely to take a long, long time. But I'd ask you to consider first Letitia James, who ran for attorney general on the promise that she would find a way to get Donald Trump. So she charged him with committing the crime of fraud where there was no victim and where even the supposed victims of the fraud said they would be happy to do business with Donald Trump again. So. Then you wonder, well, <clears throat> maybe the state of New York is going after all businesses that exaggerate the value of their real estate, because that would be just about all of them. And you say, no, 
because the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, another liberal Democrat, but very loyal to her party, has already announced. She said, we're not going to do this to other businesses. And then the question might occur to you, well, then why are you doing it to Trump? In other words, she, uh, the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, has admitted that this was a political prosecution. Its only purpose was to try to stop Donald Trump from becoming America's next president. Let's go to Craig in Linwood. Hey, Craig, welcome to the program. Hi, Lars. Hey, um, you were talking about the, the salmon hatcheries, and I had yep. a relative who worked at a salmon hatchery during the uh, beginning of the Clinton administration. Yep. And he was pretty excited because they had hundreds of thousands of smolt that they'd raised in, you know, from salmon eggs and sperm to fingerlings, and they were, they were ready to release. And there'd been a, uh, a public announcement that the, these millions of salmon were going to get released. Yep. And then and a smolt, which are to, about the size of your index yeah. finger. Yep. Yeah. Government agent, agent came and said, We've got to destroy these fish. Uh, thank you for all the work you did here. You did great. But uh, we've got a problem, so we're going to destroy them. Did they, they give a reason? Was fish. it was it disease? Was it something else? What the, what was the reason? Yeah. <laughs> there was no disease. Um, they they said there was a problem. I, I, I didn't hear what the problem <laughs> was, but it was, um, but it was an excuse. And they I, I agree. Fish, and then, but then... Th- when it was time for the salmon to return, yep, they said, "Gosh, we don't have a the salmon salmon run this year is really low. We've got to put more restrictions on fishermen and and fisheries." So yep. it was a three year con game. You you want um, a better one than that, Craig? Because this sure, is one I yeah. I know pretty well. Uh-huh. You know what? When you release a million salmon, and they go out to the mm-hmm. ocean for two to three years. And a, a tiny yeah. percentage of them come back. Do you know how many come back if you release about a million? No, I don't. About thirty to 50,000. It's about uh, as much okay. as 5%. So, But it's a yeah. pretty good deal. Costs, uh, back in the day, it cost about a nickel to raise a smold. So you raise a million of them, mm-hmm. that's 50 grand. For 50 grand, okay. you get thirty to 50,000 adult salmon coming back. Do you know what the hatcheries do to the ones that return? What? They kill them. And they used to send them to landmills. Now I think the landfills, I think they now send them to food banks. But I've asked biologists, fish biologists for the state, why do you destroy all these fish? And they said, because if they swam up river, why they breed and produce more salmon. And so we have to destroy them. So they have to destroy the salmon to save the salmon. And if you, if that makes sense to you, you could probably find a job in state government. You've got the Radio Northwest Network on President's Day. The Lars Larson Show. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com. View the videos. And then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement 
your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. You ready for the big show? In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. This is the Lars Larson Show. Never apologize for being patriotic. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. And now... Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on the Radio Northwest Network. Let's start out with things that you can say. Well, Lars, you have opinions and then you have facts. Let's start out with some facts. Number one, Oregon now has seen the largest single increase in fentanyl overdose deaths in all of America. That is a fact. Number two, voters approved the legalization, the de facto legalization of hard drugs, including cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, and fentanyl and it's killing a lot of people. The number of deaths started out 2019, 77 overdose deaths in a year. Uh, this last year, almost 1,300 overdose deaths in a year. That's the increase we're seeing. Those are facts. The Oregon legislature has had a couple of opportunities to fix this and recriminalize it, but now even the rather pale efforts of the Democrats uh, to say, well, we'll make it a C misdemeanor which is, as we've explained, why that's not going to work. Even that is being fought by some of the top end of the judicial system, which is the Oregon Supreme Court Chief Justice uh, that she says is writing a letter speaking on behalf of all judges in the entire state saying, don't bring back any criminal penalties whatsoever. And on that note, our friend Josh Marquis joins us now. Josh, welcome back to the program. Josh is the former district attorney in Clatsop County. What should we make of the Oregon State Supreme Court Chief Justice saying, I'm speaking on behalf of all judges, even a C misdemeanor is too much? It's, it's, it's very disturbing. First, because generally we don't hear deliberately from judicial branch when it comes to making laws. The United States has always gone out of the way to separate the executive branch, the governor or the president, the legislative branch, the Congress of the legislature, and the, and the, and the judicial branch, in this case, the state Supreme Court. Uh, the eight-page letter is framed in the form of concerns, but it's almost unprecedented for the court system. And also it's important to understand that although the Chief Justice claims she's speaking for roughly 200 judges who range from the Supreme Court to the Court of Appeals to the mostly the circuit court judges that sit throughout the state, she's really not their, their boss. She's just the, the, the highest ranking judge. And although they're framed as concerns, essentially this looks like an attempt. And let's keep in mind that all the judges on the Oregon Supreme Court were appointed by Kate Brown um, to essentially put the, 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 the brakes on any meaningful reform to measure 110. And although 58% of Oregonians did vote for it in 2020, they were conned, and polling now shows about 64% would vote to have it repealed. And as you said, Lars, the, the Democratic Party, the party to which I belong, has, has floated an incredibly watered-down version uh, of a Class C misdemeanor, which is such a low crime that 
it's almost impossible to give examples of real crimes that are actually prosecuted. And then a system that the Chief Justice talks about called deflection, which is just a term they made up. It just doesn't really exist in the law. And essentially what they're saying is, oh, there's so many problems will be created. We just don't know how to do it. Of course, the answer would be repeal it and go back to when we had drug courts 10 years ago that worked when it was a potential felony, and people actually had to work their way back to not having a felony record. And by the way, there's Megan Flynn, the Chief Justice of the Oregon Supreme Court, who wrote this letter. It was a secret letter. It was not publicly available, but the Capitol Chronicle got a copy of it, and credit to them for that. She makes the argument, if you make it a C felony, she she rather politely describes that a lot of these drug addicts have a real tough time showing up in court on time for their court hearing, meaning that they're a bunch of of of, of no goods who just say, I'm, I'm not going to show up to court. And then there will be an A misdemeanor, which is failure to appear. And she says, we don't have enough lawyers to represent all these people uh, to be able to handle this massive increase in failure to appear cases, which makes it sound like she's warning ahead of time, if you recriminalize it, the courts are just the courts and the prosecutors are for the most part going to ignore both the C misdemeanor and the A misdemeanor, which means again, there's no penalty for using hard drugs. Am I wrong in any of that analysis? Not at all. In fact, the whole point, there's, there was a crime created in the 70s called failure to appear for a misdemeanor, and it was intended to make it fairly serious if you ignored a criminal citation. And that's why it's a Class A misdemeanor. In fact, our entire court system is built on the concept that basically flipping off the courts by saying, I don't care if I got arrested for harassment or domestic violence, which is a misdemeanor. Let's just keep it misdemeanors. If I don't show up in court, that's supposed to be serious. And Oregon spends more money on indigent defense than almost any state in the country. We've just spread it out to so many different kinds of cases that we should be getting back to basics, which is criminal cases. And you're right, Lars. Unfortunately, a lot of the people who are drug addicts are, you know, they don't care whether they get citations. They don't care about showing up. And we can do two things. We can either try to make their lives as uncomfortable enough that they will start paying attention. And most of us in America have some experience with addiction and recovery. If not personally, we have family members who have been through it. And it's hard, no question about it. But if we surrender to addiction, if we just say, well, we don't want to make it inconvenient for you, we're just, we, we're doing exactly that. We're surrendering to addiction. And uh, by the way, right let me go through, there are a couple of other issues I want to cover quickly. One, we don't have enough defense attorneys to represent these indigent defendants. You've made the point that Oregon spends massive amounts of money providing far more than the Constitution guarantees when the Constitution says if you're accused of a crime, you get counsel. You're entitled to counsel paid for by the voters. You could solve this one right now, couldn't you? We could. We could do what the federal government or many states do, and that is to say, if you are at risk of going to jail for six months or longer, what in Oregon would be called a Class B or A misdemeanor or higher, then you get a court-appointed lawyer. You don't get a free lawyer under the federal system or, or most states for basically really low Class C misdemeanors. And this idea that in Oregon, basically, if you could maybe face one hour of detention, you have to have a court-appointed attorney 
who's paid thousands and thousands of dollars. You're right. If you, we got rid of that. The other thing that they could do is quit using court-appointed lawyers for all these things that are not criminally related. In other words, family court, juvenile court, you know, the idea that everybody's entitled to ten to $20,000 of free lawyering is frankly absurd. Okay, last it's issue we've got to hit before sure. you go, and that is the political money. Is this because the Democrats fear that if they reverse this, they're going to lose a bunch of money that now comes in from liberal donors who wanted Measure 110 passed? Well, let's just look at one thing really straightforward. Do it quickly. The two co-chairs of the Special Addiction Committee, Democrats, uh, Jason Kropp and Kate Lieber, they both received massive amounts of money, as did almost every other Democrat, from the Drug Policy uh, Alliance, which are the people who, who cooked up Measure 110 and who have a vested interest in continuing. Josh Marquis, former DA, you know what's going on. There's a political game that's going to leave these drugs still legal in order. Oregon, and more people are going to die. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated. But the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Auto Arc. Just think of him as your concealed carry. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I want to talk about Donald Trump and the case that was decided with the penalty that came down last week. A one-third of a billion-dollar fine against Donald Trump. A prohibition on Donald Trump doing any kind of business in the state of New York for the next three years. And most importantly, he will appeal this case, but to be able to appeal it, he has to post a bond. And the bond isn't the $350 million he was fined. It's $350 million plus. He has to post 120% of the amount he owes to cover interest and other costs. This is the argument that's made by the judge who did this. And if he does not post the money, he can't appeal. Now, I think if he appeals, I'm not, I'm a non-lawyer, but I would say that Donald Trump has a very good uh, chance of getting that entire judgment reduced because the state of New York has decided to find Donald Trump in a way that almost nobody has ever been fined before. And if they adopt this kind of standard in the state of New York, there are an awful lot of businesses that are based in the state of New York. And if you say to all those businesses, have you ever overvalued or undervalued the real estate and other assets that you own in New York? 
it is likely something that virtually every business that operates in New York, not, not to mention a lot of businesses around the rest of the country. Because you can imagine that an awful lot of people who are in business, when they go into the bank to borrow money, and the bank says, well, how much is your business worth right now? And you say, well, based on revenue and other things, we're probably worth this much. And they name a number. Now, it's up to the lender to decide whether or not you have told them the truth and whether or not they can trust that the assets you're putting up as collateral are enough to cover the loan if you decide to go south on the payments. All of the banks who did business with Donald Trump said they were perfectly happy with the arrangement they had with Donald Trump, that he borrowed money and he paid it back on time and in many cases ahead of time. But here's where it gets really, really complicated, because there are truckers in America who see Donald Trump as a hero. I see him as a hero as well. They see him as the guy who brought about a lot of prosperity in America, and prosperity generally means more loads for truckers. But the truckers are talking about a boycott of New York, not just New York City, but New York State as well. Now, if you sneer at that kind of idea, I will give you, before this segment ends, I will give you a great example where the same kind of trucker boycott that happened just in the last three years actually turned an entire state around on an issue. And it was a very small issue, but it involved, again, the courts and the kind of punishment that was handed out. Well, let me get to that in a moment. First, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. We call it the best conversation in talk journalism, and I think it is every single day. And if you want to join the conversation, it's 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, you disagree with my point of view, that is perfectly okay. You're more than welcome. We'll put you right to the head of the line. You just have to bring your argument a few facts, a little bit of logic, and a willingness to answer a couple of questions from me, because if I disagree with you, I'm going to probably try to prove you wrong. So, 866-439-5277. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Our poll on X today, should a non-citizen be in charge or even have a voice in running elections. It has happened in San Francisco. They have a city elections commission that oversees elections held in the city of San Francisco. It has always had citizen membership, meaning, well, I think it makes kind of common sense that if you're going to be on the elections commission, would you put somebody on the elections commission who is legally not able to vote in the United States? Doesn't make any sense, does it? Well, a lot of things that happen in San Francisco don't make any sense. But now, San Francisco is so proud of itself that they believe that the appointment of Kelly Wong, who is a Chinese national, but she lives in the United States. She apparently lives here legally. I've had a few people ask if she's an illegal alien. She is. She does not appear to be. She came here about five years ago. She will be the first non-citizen appointed to the commission. So to put a point on it, you're putting somebody on the Elections Commission who can't vote in American elections. And San Francisco is just so proud of this. But not only is Kelly Wong a Chinese national and not an American citizen eligible to vote, but she's also an advocate for the illegal aliens in America to be able to vote. She is quoted over and over again saying that she wants to make sure that every single person in the United States, without regard to their immigration status, is able to vote. That is liberal code language for, I want illegal aliens to vote in elections. She says she wants to enfranchise people and help non-citizens become citizens. 
By what? By voting in an election, which is if you register to vote and you're a non-citizen, you're committing a crime. If you cast a ballot and you're a non-citizen, you're committing a crime. So she wants to help people who are illegally in America commit some more crimes and then become citizens, if that makes sense to you. And if it does, you probably are voting Democrat this year. If you want to join the conversation, it's 866-A-LARS. Emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. The poll on X can be found at Lars Larson Show on X. You can also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com. So, some American truckers are already saying publicly they want to stage a boycott of the state of New York. And why? They want to protest what is being done to Donald Trump. And they understand when it comes to over-the-top penalties for something that happens. So let me give you this example. It comes from December of 2021, and it comes from a trucking company that wrote this up. About three years ago, there was a young man, Rogel Aguilera Maderos, and he was found guilty, 27 charges, four of negligent homicide, including assault, first-degree assault, all of this because of a gigantic wreck that happened on I-70 west of Denver. I've been on that freeway before. April of 2019, this young guy is traveling eastbound. He's headed toward Denver, and he made a bunch of rookie mistakes, according to all the news reports. He's heading down a hill, and when you're heading down a hill, do you take your truck out of gear? I'm a non-trucker. I know you don't take the truck out of gear because the engine will help slow you down even if you don't have Jake brakes. He was fully loaded. He's going down the hill. He ends up taking it out of gear, so he's going to go faster. He ends up burning out his brakes. He's going to go faster. He ends up not taking one of those emergency exit ramps that is provided for trucks that have no brakes and are out of control. His crash, the crash, took four lives. So what did they give him? They gave him 110 years in prison. And the comparison is made to another Colorado, a teenager, who actually was drunk and driving and killed four people. What did Ethan Couch get? He got 10 years of probation. What did Aguilera Maderos get for the accident that also took four lives when his truck went out of control? He got 110 years in prison. Truck drivers thought that was wrong. They staged a boycott of Colorado. And within a month, the state had decided to go back and take another look at that sentence. They gave the truck driver clemency and then resentenced him to something that was appropriate, 10 years in prison. Now there are a lot of truckers saying they may, they may actually boycott New York. Now, can you imagine a truck driver, especially an independent, can pick up loads anywhere he wants, drop them off anywhere he wants. He just takes the contract or he doesn't. Can you imagine if even a sizable number of truckers say, I can haul loads to a lot of places. I'm not hauling to New York. I'm not hauling from New York. And can you imagine the kind of chaos you could create, not just in the state of New York, but in New York City as well? That might actually get their attention, and I applaud the truckers for doing that. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. The Lars Larson Show. IQ. Go to bbbadtruth.org. Saying the things you wish you could say more. 
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Last Friday, we got word that Alexei Navalny had died in an Arctic penal colony where he'd been sent by the Russian government. He was convicted, according to the Russians, of the crime of extremism. And I'm going to want to get an explanation of that. But I guess uh, I wanted to talk about who this guy was, what it means, the fact that he was challenging uh, Vladimir Putin. He was one of Putin's biggest critics. Uh, but how much it actually seems to reflect some of the current situation in the United States. We'll get to that in a moment. George Beebe joins me now, former director of the CIA's Russia's, uh, Russia Analysis Department and former Russian advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney, currently the director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute. Uh, Mr. Beebe, welcome back. Hi, Lars. Thank you. So when they say that uh, Alexei Nav uh, Navalny, who died last Friday in this Arctic penal colony, was convicted and sentenced to 19 years for extremism. What does that mean? Well, uh, Russia has some fairly flexible definitions of what that means. I think it comes down to what the Kremlin decides it doesn't want to tolerate. <laughs> and Navalny, for, for a long time, has been in the opposition uh, to Putin. Uh, he started as a nationalist opponent, uh, arguing that uh, Putin was not doing enough to support Russian compatriots living outside of Russia proper in other parts of the former Soviet Union. Um, but then he, he uh, I think, evolved into someone that was pushing for greater freedom and democracy in Russia. And most recently, and what I think has really resonated with, with the Russian people, he's been a an anti-corruption crusader. And that's an issue that a lot of Russians are, are unhappy about, uh, of all political persuasions, Democrats, nationalists, moderates. Um, all of them are concerned that the Russian government is too corrupt, that the people at the top of the system are living off of uh, theft, essentially. Uh, and um, that's something that uh, Navalny really started hitting on in the past several years. And uh, it definitely had an impact. It resonated with the Russian people. Yeah, and in fact, uh, he didn't have, uh, I've seen some public opinion polling from Russia to the extent that you can trust it. He wasn't, he wasn't always popular with, with the majority, but he certainly was raising issues that a lot of Russians did care about. No, that's right. I, I, I'm not sure that uh, anything close to a majority of Russians would have voted for Navalny to be president, but they certainly were concerned about the kinds of issues related to corruption that, that he was forcing the uh, the Putin government to contend with. Does this change things dramatically to have uh, Putin's number one uh, critic uh, now pass away? But, I mean, he'd been in prison for a, a bit, so... So I'm not sure that he was still, or was he still seen as a leader of the of the opposition? Well, what he was trying to do was to lead from within prison, and he he had ways of getting messages out into the public, uh, onto the internet, online, and and certainly um, his organization uh, was able to help him do that. So he was having an ability. Uh, to say things despite his imprisonment. But obviously, um, being imprisoned under such onerous conditions really uh, put, put a dent in his ability to have impact. Um, now, how, uh, how will this affect the Russian opposition movement over time? It remains to be seen. Um, I think 
Navalny's hope was that his willingness to put himself at great personal risk, even to become a martyr, which he ultimately ended up doing, would rally people, inspire people, cause the Russian opposition to rally. Um, but whether that happens or not, we'll have to see. Certainly, the, the Putin administration is hoping that their treatment of Navalny will discourage other people from trying to follow in his footsteps. I'm talking to George Beebe from the Quincy Institute. So, George, feel free to call me crazy. But do you see uh, contrasts and comparisons between what's happening to political opponents in Russia and what seems to be happening to political opponents in America? Well, there's uh, there's a, a difference in scale, certainly. Um, nobody is is poisoning political opponents inside the United States or sentencing them to <laughs> years of hard labor under Siberian conditions. Um, but this notion that uh, the judicial system should be a political arm that is meant to suppress. And, and cripple political opposition, that's something that has always been out of bounds in the United States. Uh, we've had an, a, a Bill of Rights. We've had an independent judiciary that made sure that our government could not turn law enforcement, could not turn uh, intelligence services or secret police into weapons against political opponents. And I think there's no question that that, that has eroded. Now, has it eroded to the point that it, that it uh, is approximate to what Russia is doing? No, I don't think so. No, and I, I wouldn't think. make that argument. And I certainly hope, yeah, I certainly hope that it doesn't. But the direction that things are going, I think no question it's disturbing. I mean, it's just when I see that uh, we see a year's worth of riots by the left, uh, that leave us with billions of dollars of damage and people dead and people in the hospital from the Antifa BLM riots, and nothing much happens to them at all. We saw a riot at the Capitol building. Certainly crimes were committed. Property was destroyed. Uh, trespass was committed. Okay. But then we see these people locked up largely incommunicado without due process for a long time. And uh, it, it seems, I, I just see echoes of the way that other, thir you know, countries like Russia, Cuba, Venezuela, and others treat their political opponents. If you're on the wrong side, you do anything, they're going to throw you in the jug for a long, long time. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's human nature. Um, that's uh, something that our founding fathers recognized wisely, that power corrupts. And they built a system that was meant to mitigate against that tendency so that we had checks and balances legal provisions that made it unlikely the government could abuse its power. Um, and those uh, those principles are not one and done. Those are things that we have to defend continually over the course of our, our country's development. We can't take them for granted. So I think these are very important things for people to keep in mind. And we can use what's going on in Russia as a warning what we don't want to see happen here. I mean, when I saw it, there was a report, and Matt Taibbi, I don't know the man personally, but he's, he seems to be a great journalist. He's kind of a liberal personally, but he, he writes this great report where he says the Five Eyes, the intelligence services, were put to work by the FBI to go out and follow 26 people who are associated with the Trump campaign back in either the winter of 2016 or maybe even earlier than that. And you think that begins to sound like what we hear about in foreign countries when they like Russia, where you say, oh, you're running against the power structure. OK, 
we're going to use the you know the FBI to go out. We'll find something you know like like Beria said. You know, show me the man, and I'll show you the crime. We'll find something you've done. If not, and that that's how the whole Russia hoax got going. It seems as though we're headed that direction. Yeah, and I think Matt Taibbi is an example of someone who is not uh, a right-wing nationalist by a long shot. I think he would nope. describe himself as someone coming at this issue from the political left, but he believes deeply in civil liberties, in, in protecting Americans, enforcing the Bill of Rights, making sure that no government uh, has the kind of ability uh, to abuse the legal system, to abuse our intelligence uh, capabilities for political purposes. So these are extremely serious things. Um, and uh, I think um, Matt is to be commended for his courage in reporting on these things. Absolutely right. That's George Beebe from the Quincy Institute. George, thanks so much for the time. Glad to get to your calls in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges, but how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Keeping you happy, informed, and always guessing what he'll say next, here's Lars Larson. Drivers across the land, they're P.O. to beat the band. Big Trump got a real raw deal. They want to stop another steal. Boycott New York, MAGA truckers. Letitia James is one blood sucker. The New York bar, they ought to chuck her. Boycott New York, MAGA truckers. Judge Ingeron is a left-wing hater, not to mention a confiscator. His insane verdict, it made no sense. For this judge, there's no defense. Boycott New York, prop truck drivers. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on President's Day 2024. Glad to have you with me. And if you want to jump into what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day on the Radio Northwest Network. Our poll on X today, should a non-citizen have a place on an elections board in America? 
Well, it hasn't happened before now, but now San Francisco is bragging that it is the first non-citizen appointed to an elections commission, meaning that Chinese national Kelly Wong, who is living apparently legally in the United States, now have no reason to believe otherwise, and who advocates for voting rights for illegal aliens, has become the first non-citizen appointed to the commission. She can't vote but she is making decisions or will be making decisions about how San Francisco runs its elections. Should a non-citizen be in charge of running elections? My answer to that would be no. Today's poll on X is brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Now, on Friday, on First Amendment Friday, the X poll question, should pedophiles get the death penalty? Idaho's House of Representatives has approved that. I hope the Senate votes for it as well. And I hope Governor Brad Little signs the bill. I'm in favor of it. 92% of you voted yes with me. Only 8% of you voted no in Friday's question. Let's go first to Ed. And if you want to join the conversation, it's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277 with naysayers going first. Ed, what's on the, what's on your mind? And welcome to the show. Oh, hello. Good afternoon, Lars. How do you know that I'm a naysayer? Oh, I didn't say you were a naysayer. I just said naysayers go first. Usually I introduce naysayers by just inquiring as to what we disagree about, and I didn't see that you were a naysayer. Are you? Yes, I'm a far lefty, and full disclosure, I know okay. your position on issues, so it's only fair that you know that I'm a far lefty. Recently, well, God bless you in your Lars, confusion. <laughs> Well, I don't know if God has blessed me, but I know that a recent presidential poll rated former President Trump at the very bottom. I know that if yes, you it did. made the poll, I know that if you did that poll, President Trump would not be at the bottom. No. And I know there is some, and I know there is some subjectivity in this kind of evaluation. Still, you think? I want your opinion, Lars. Okay, can I ask you one thing Trump first, Ed? Do you know who they polled to rank Donald Trump dead last among American presidents and Joe Biden at number 14 ahead of Ronald Reagan? Do you know who they polled? I think they polled political scientists, political economists, academicians, you know, university professors, that bunch. Yeah, that bunch. So there was no chance... Uh, that you were going to poll a bunch of university professors and not get a completely left-wing result, was there? I don't know about that. It seems to me Lincoln is on top, followed by Washington, and then Roosevelt. And actually, I would have put it the reverse. Washington on top, Lincoln. Lincoln, who absolutely came in so close on second, I'd almost put it a tie. But I think Washington deserved more because of several things, which I explained to my friend Kevin Miller this morning. Um, I said, number one, Washington won the freedom of a nation against all odds, beating the greatest military on planet Earth, even though he made mistakes. And there were big mistakes that he made, but he managed to, you know, to uh, persevere anyway. That was number one. Number two, he resisted the, at the time, very popular notion that America should have a king. Having just uh, overthrown tyrannical rule from one king, there were a lot of Americans who wanted a king. They, they felt good about the idea of a king. And Washington turned that down. He said, no, I don't want uh, the United States, the new country, to have a king. 
And I think that was very important. Had he made a different decision, things might have gone very differently. And, of course, he, he was a man who wanted to spend more time at his farm than he spent Washington, D.C., because he was very proud of being a farmer. And, and I think that's a notion that is, is not familiar to any liberals in America, and far too many conservatives care more about staying in office than they do about serving the people. Can you tell me, why do you think that Joe Biden is a better president than, uh, than Ronald Reagan, for example? Well, that's, Lars, Joe Biden represents my interests. Way really? What has he done? Can you tell will. me what he no. has done in now, the last Reagan 30 years? Reagan may represent your interests, and that's Reagan fine. made America Doesn't great, but tell me, no, fine. but Ed, tell me this. In the last 20 seconds now, what has Joe Biden done that has made your life better? I believe that Joe Biden represents women's right to choose their own reproductive choices. You know, the environment. Aren't you glad black. your mom didn't? Yes, I am glad. I'm not necessarily, wouldn't you ever do that? You know, Lars, I wouldn't necessarily ever do an abortion. But you support no. the right of any woman to dispose of a baby because the baby's inconvenient. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. But, Ed, you're a good naysayer. You got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Quiet, please. Ladies and gentlemen. You ready for the big show? Right. In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. Lars. This is the Lars Larson Show. Never apologize for being patriotic. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. And now... Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on President's Day 2024. And especially glad to be with you on the Radio Northwest Network, serving the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho for these past 24 years. Glad to have your calls as well at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. And as always, naysayers go to the head of the line. You can send me emails at talk at LarsLarson.com. And our, our poll on X, uh, the daily question we put up, should a non-citizen, be on a board that oversees elections in which she can't even vote. 
It's happened in San Francisco, where they have placed a woman, Kelly Wong, on the Elections Commission, who is a Chinese national. Now, she lives in the United States, apparently legally. She advocates for illegal aliens to be granted the right to vote. And now she has a seat on the commission that oversees San Francisco's elections, even though she herself cannot legally vote. If that makes sense to you, you can find the poll question at Lars Larson Show on X, also on our website. It's brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Now, a real pleasure to welcome back to the program journalist Jonathan Cho, who's with the Discovery Institute in Seattle. Jonathan, glad to have you on. Hey, happy President's Day, Lars. Happy President's Day to you as well, Jay Cho. So tell me this. We've actually got a bill before the legislature in Olympia uh, that is about housing, but more likely to make more people homeless. Is that about the size of it? Well, uh, not only uh, potentially make people homeless, but uh, really uh, piss a lot of people off uh, in the community. Um, this is the epitome of government overreach. As you know, we're in the Washington legislative session of flurry of bills. But this is something that's sort of been flying under the radar, and I believe it's all by design. You know, I've been, I picked up on this, uh, last month. I've been following it closely. I didn't think it would get this far, but it's, uh, out of the House and now, uh, into a Senate committee Tuesday morning. And essentially what HB 2474 does is that it gives the state power and authority to choke off tax revenues to cities that don't want to play ball with these housing first initiatives essentially the low barrier housing that allows drug addicts, chronically homeless and mentally ill, to go into communities. And this is directly in response to Kenmore, Washington's ferocious pushback against Plymouth Housing's 100-unit project that would have allowed drug addicts uh, to come in. No strings attached, no requirements for treatment. Uh, however, the common-sense people of Kenmore fought back and killed that project. They quickly moved it over to Redmond, where it's now in process, but... Uh, in turn, a word got back to all of uh, Plymouth Housing's uh, political uh, allies in Olympia, and uh, this bill uh, out of nowhere gets introduced by Washington State Representative Strom Peterson, Democrat, zero bipartisan support, and uh, there's a good chance it might pass. And by the way, one of the most frequent questions I get from my audience is who's behind this? Well, Representative Strom Peterson. Before we leave Plymouth Housing altogether, because it's a great example of what the legislature seeks to punish in HB 2474. So now the project's in Redmond, home of, of, uh, Microsoft. Is it likely that Microsoft, the Microsoft millionaires and all the other people who live in a nice town like Redmond are going to welcome a hundred drug addicts living in their community? Well, here's the crazy part. As you, as you know, Lars, uh, it's barely getting any media coverage. And uh, with these housing-first, uh, low-barrier situations, uh, the community usually finds out when it's too late. So I don't even know if the, the Microsoft executives know what's going on, but they usually, you know, drink the Kool-Aid and say, oh, well, if it's an affordable housing project, we've got to have it. Well, here's the key difference that all your listeners really need to know about this, and this is the spin. All of these folks that are in the housing-first lobby will say, we need more affordable housing. I agree. I don't disagree with that, Lars. The problem is when there's the bait and switch and they don't tell you 
that it's low barrier. It's not for families, veterans, and seniors. It's, again, for the drug addicts, the chronically homeless, the folks who are essentially just being warehoused because they're not required to get treatment or to get better. It's no strings attached. That's well, the problem. And, and, and Jay Cho, I'm with you. I want low-cost housing as well. I want housing that meets everybody's needs, from the lowest income to the highest, but I don't want it built by the government. Almost every government housing project I've ever looked at as a journalist has been at least 50%, sometimes 100% more expensive than the very same thing built by the private sector in the same neighborhoods to the same level of quality. In other words, if you compare apples to apples, and I've done a bunch of these, where you say, okay, studios, one bedrooms, two bedrooms, you know, a couple of three bedrooms, what does it cost from the private sector built at the same time in the same neighborhood, whether it's Portland or Seattle, it's always at least 50% more expensive for no reason. So I object to that. I would like to see low-cost housing or less expensive housing built by clearing the path so the private sector can do it. Whereas the people in Olympia and downtown Seattle and downtown Portland, too, they seem to think the way you build low-cost housing is you put a gun to somebody's head, take their taxes, and then subsidize what you're going to build for the drug addicts. And that doesn't make sense. Yeah, and not only will it cost more taxpayer dollars in most of these cases, the drain on the community, because once these are built, these low-barrier housing-first projects go into the communities, and then usually the 911 calls spike, the illicit activity in the neighborhood spike, because all of these people, they're not getting better. They're just being warehoused, and they eventually go back into the neighborhood, and it's a drain on the cops. It's a drain on the businesses. Businesses leave, and that's the fear here. And it's just stunning how these lawmakers, really, who are not experts, they're just generalists, are listening to only one side of the narrative, and, and it appears not considering the other problematic side. And by the way, Jay Cho, do you know who actually was the national originator of low-barrier sheltering housing first policy? Um, I should know this, but uh, enlighten no. me, Lars. I just didn't want to, you know, but I, I, but here's the thing I find terribly ironic. 2013, a guy by the name of, uh, he went by Barry, Barry Sotero for a while, but then he became Barack Obama. He announced in 2013, I'm going to require that anybody who takes HUD money, federal housing money, uh, has to go with housing first. That community, if they don't do it, we won't give them any federal cash. And he said, we will solve homelessness in a decade. Well, Jay Cho, you see it from the street level. Did homelessness get better or worse in the 10 years during which Barack Obama promised this policy would solve the problem? Well, this is a great history lesson, and the short answer is absolutely not. When homelessness in America is now up 12 percent, more than 650,000 Americans, including veterans, women and children, on the streets, and the crisis is getting worse with no end in sight. And even when a guy like a president says, I'm going to take the massive funding of the Housing and Urban Development Department, and I'm going to tell you, you don't get it if you don't go with this, but if you do, we're going to solve the problem in a decade, even with all that juice behind this crazy idea, which I thought was crazy at the time. He pushes the idea out. He's got the, the gravitas. He's got the platform. He's got all the cash tied up. And he says it'll be solved in a decade. Well, we're now in a decade plus one year, and it's not solved at all. That's Jay Cho, Jonathan Cho, who's a journalist with the Discovery Institute. Back in a moment, glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. And we'll talk about that idea of putting a non-voter citizen, a non-voter, onto a citizen's elections commission. That's next.
I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. If we keep meeting like this, people are going to talk. Here's Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to take your calls, and I'll get to those calls in just a moment. But a couple of things I want to mention on President's Day 2024. Um, first, I want to mention uh, the survey that was done that's being talked about. It's being reported uh, by a lot of news organizations without them pointing out that the folks they surveyed were college professors. In other words, they're coming from a toxic liberal environment. So, of course, who do they rank as the best president? It wouldn't be George Washington, who's my choice for first. Uh, they instead put Lincoln there, I think, because of the racial issues that are implied by Lincoln being at the top of the list. Washington, they rank number two. But what's really stunning is they rank Pre President Trump dead last among American presidents, below everybody. And where do they put Joe Biden? They put him at 14, and the poll of these liberal academics says that Joe Biden has been a better president of the United States than even Ronald Reagan, which I think is absolute lunacy. That guts the poll for me. Where did Obama come in? Number seven. So Joe Biden is only seven rankings behind Barack Obama, if that tells you anything. And again, President Trump comes in dead last in that poll. The second thing that I want to mention is this business about uh, putting somebody on elections, an elections commission. And this happened in San, San, uh, San Francisco, uh, that she, Kelly Wong, is an immigrant from Hong Kong, which means she has uh, Chinese citizenship, came to the United States about five years ago. She is the first non-citizen to be chosen for San Francisco's City Election Commission after voters elected to remove the citizenship requirement to serve on local boards and commissions about four years ago. Imagine that. A woman who is still a Chinese national, has been here five years, has not become a citizen, and who is serving on an elections commission overseeing elections when she herself cannot legally vote. But you find out everything you have to know about this subject when you take a look at this quote. And it is from Kelly Wong, Chinese national, now on an American Elections Commission. I am deeply committed to ensuring that everyone, regardless of immigration status, has a seat at the table in shaping the future of our city. In other words, she wants illegal aliens to be able to vote. Because if you can be registered to vote and cast a ballot in America without regard to your immigration status, that means she wants illegal aliens to vote. 
And I think uh, Democrats are desperate to let illegals vote in this year's election. In fact, I'm, I'm sure that the DNC has decided the only thing that's going to bail out Democrats in a year like this, where they have a complete loser candidate in Joe Biden, and if they get rid of Joe Biden, they have an even bigger loser in Kamala Harris, and if they get rid of her somehow, and I don't know how politically they deal with that, but they have nobody left. I mean, Gavin Newsom would, you know, maybe run for president. But after the damage he's done in California, I don't see any way that he could become president of the United States. He couldn't exactly run on that track record. So the Democrats have their problems and they think that all these illegal aliens that Joe Biden has managed to bring into the country, more than 10 million in the last three years, just over three years now, more than 10 million people. And he wants them all to vote. And there are states like Arizona that have already told the public why you have to be a citizen to vote in Arizona. But if you come in and you say, I don't have proof of citizenship, just show us that you live in Arizona, they say, and we will sign you up, but you can only vote for president, senator, and U.S. House of Representatives. Well, that doesn't solve the problem now, does it? But it's very clearly their plan. They see a win in this election by simply importing enough illegal aliens across our border, even if it traffics children, even if it kills a lot of people from fentanyl, even if it is in a violation of America's laws, they want those illegal aliens in the country. Let's go to Gary. Hey, Gary, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars. Uh, go Ducks. Well, I don't see why the Dems are not equally as upset with what they did to Trump as everybody else is or it's it's so outrageous that they can take you're away talking your about the fine on nothing. Friday for basically yeah. putting him out of business can't do business in New York can't do business with any bank that even does business in New York and they want him and to be even able to appeal the case he's gonna to have to post a four hundred and fifty million dollar bond but he's not allowed to borrow the money or get the money from any bank that does any business in New York which pretty much is all the banks in the world I mean do, do Democrats think that they're gonna be uh, immune from this type yes. of, of uh, yes. abuse? yes and Gary this is probably the most disturbing thing about all of this I say disturbing it, it ought to make us crazy yeah. Because think about it this way. If you have a group of people who stage and organize a coordinated series of riots in American cities over the course of less than one year that does $3 billion damage, is connected to three dozen murders, it sends hundreds or thousands of people to the hospital, does all this damage, would you expect that serious consequences would come on the people who are directly involved and to those who organized it? Yeah, and the bigger issue, Lars, is that they can do the same thing to your house as they did to his business. Who says you own your house anymore? Because they can say, oh, well, uh, you you voted for the wrong person, so we're going to just take your, your house for no well, apparent they, they, reason. They could. They could take Mar-a-Lago from Donald Trump. Now, what would have to happen is he, he would have to get to a point where he's lost the case, he loses the appeal, and I think he's going to win his appeal. And then they would have to say, now pay the money. He's worth about two point, the best estimates are about 2.7 billion. So this would be about 15% of his net worth. So will Donald Trump be able to find a bank somewhere on planet Earth that will loan him the money or to sell some of those assets that he has since he has most of his net worth 
is in uh, you know properties. He has a golf club that's worth about two hundred. A, a country club that's worth about two hundred million. I think Trump Tower is is valued at about quarter billion. So if he sold the golf club in New York State and sold the Trump Tower, that would satisfy the debt. Assuming that Donald Trump wants to pay the fine, I don't assume that because I don't think he believes that he owes the money. Nor do I. And what they've already and said, Gary, even bigger. And, huh? Go ahead. Even bigger issue is they would love to stick him in prison and have the very same thing happen to him as happened to that Russian. And I'm don't sure, kid I'm yourself sure that these people, the only difference would be is that half the country would be celebrating. Well, they, they charged him with crimes, so I think if they had their druthers, you're right, they would put him in prison if they could. I don't think they're going to put him in prison. And when you say... Well, hold on. Don't the Democrats understand this could happen to them? Do you believe that Joe Biden and his Biden crime family legitimately earned $24 million? Of course not. And okay. The, the thing is, is of course, well, they don't hold on. So hold on. Follow the thought through, the, Gary. Follow the thought through. So the Biden crime family, which has got $24 million in ill-gotten gains, do you think any of them expect they will get any kind of treatment like Donald Trump has? Well, taking away one person's freedom is taking away everybody's freedom. I totally understand that. All I'm saying is, if you say this must be based on the idea that the Democrats think we can do it to him, but nobody can do it to us, so far the evidence is there that they can get away with murder. They could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not go to prison. Back in a moment, glad to get your calls. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. The Lars Larson Show. He's the best investment in talk radio, and it's free. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. We'll do that in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you happen to be a naysayer, that is, you disagree with my point of view, you're more than welcome. We'll put you right to the head of the list. If you want to send an email, it's talk at LarsLarson.com. You can vote in our poll on X. Today the poll is, should a non-citizen be a man who can't vote? Uh, be a member of a uh, voting commission. San Francisco has seen fit to put a non-citizen, a Chinese national, on a uh, elections commission in San Francisco, apparently for the first time in history, and decided, yep, we're going to have this young lady, Kelly Wong, making decisions about how elections are held, but no. She's not allowed to vote in those elections, although she is advocating for the voting rights of illegal aliens. So that kind of tells you where she's coming from, other than China. Adam Angievsky joins me now, who's CEO and founder of OpenTheBooks.com. Adam, how are you? Well, I'm doing well, Lars. Thanks for having me back. I would think that the last place we might be sending American tax dollars would be to China, which, apparent, which is a country that has a lot of money and a lot of uh, muscle, uh, politically and economically, and to Russia, which is currently in the process of an invasion of Ukraine that the U.S. officially disapproves of, and yet we are sending them a lot of money? <laughs> well, yeah, when uh, Washington certainly sends a mixed message when it uses on one hand, we rattle sabers, and then on the other hand, we write, our, write checks from our taxpayers. So since 2017, our auditors 
at OpenTheBooks.com, in combination with U.S. Senator Joni Ernst and her staff, we quantified $1.3 billion flowed into the two adversarial nations, that's China and Russia, uh, over a five-year period. So you had, you had about $800 million flow into Russia and about $500 million flow into China. And look, we're, you know, all of it's borrowed against the national debt. So we're borrowing it on one hand to send to China, and then they're buying our national debt with the other hand. Now, can you give us an idea out of $1.3 billion, where's this money going? Because you detailed $490 million of U.S. grants and contracts. What kind of contracts do we have in, in communist China? Well, here's one that's particularly egregious. $6 million for tech support for our military for the development and distribution of command software, which delivers equipment and supplies anywhere where our military is deployed around the world. And this came after the DOD, Department of Defense Inspector General, warned the Pentagon about using Chinese IT companies on defense projects. Now, why are we... So we're going to deliberately buy the software that tracks where all of our stuff is going from the communist Chinese who are infamous for finding new new and different ways, creative ways, to spy on us, like TikTok. But we're going to buy our software for supply chain to our U.S. military from the communist Chinese rather than developing it here in America? Yeah, unbelievable. And here's something that's also pretty unbelievable. So when the U.S., when Turner exits the briefing at the U.S. House the other day and complains about Russia and the possibility of putting a nuclear-armed rocket into space... U.S. taxpayer dollars have put $55 million into their top rocket and space corporation in Russia. And this is uh, underneath our spacecraft and space station uh, program in concert with the Russians. But it's that same technology that would then launch the nuclear warhead. Now, this makes no sense at all. But there are also some goofy ones. I mean, the government spend, tends to spend uh, money on goofy things. I call them goofy things like gender equality. Now, I realize at the end of the day, it doesn't it adds up to hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, not necessarily billions. But give us some examples of some of those. Well, so it goes right to the culture of, of misallocation of taxpayer resource resources and waste. And so some of the times these small expenditures tell you a lot more than about really what's going on. So for instance, at the State Department, $100,000 went on grants to promote gender equality through the exhibition of New Yorker magazine cartoons. <laughs> so that was a twofer for uh, for our government. It supported the New Yorker magazine and then also pumped $100,000 into Chinese entities. And then, then you got, you know, my favorite, which is the surfer dancing diplomats. So, the, you know, the diplomats are at our State Department. They wanted a beach party with the top surfers. So they decided to organize a climate conference with those surfers. And right on tape, on their videos, we got our 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 swimsuit-clad diplomats dancing on the Chinese beaches, $25,000. See, and, and this is the thing, Adam. I happen to notice this story earlier today. It's not big enough to make, you know, kind of rise to the top. But it was about how New York City, which has now got a major crime problem, apparently their police department has a dance team. And if you think, oh, you mean this is a bunch of police officers who in their off-duty time uh, go out and, you know, have organized. I don't have a problem with that. You can organize whatever you want. But apparently the city of New York pays for this so that their 
police department can have a dance team. It kind of tells you, as you suggested about the federal government expenditures, that they're just not serious about anything. If their purpose was, we need to provide a good defense of the United States, we need to provide the national government services that only government can promote, why in the world do we have to pay $100,000 to show Chinese people uh, cartoons from the New Yorker magazine because it promotes gender equality? Yeah, and those are the silly things. Here's what's really troubling. So we were able to tie out with Senator Ernst's staff $2 million of U.S. taxpayer money into the Wuhan lab in China. And then as soon as we did that, the Government Accountability uh, Office, they did a study. They said, well, wait a second, only $1.4 million of U.S. taxpayer dollars actually ended up there because certain grants were stopped even though the work was completed. Okay, so at the same time, Taxpayers pumped in $300,000 into Chinese scientist ethics training because <laughs> our National Institutes of Health recognized that Chinese scientists engaged in research misconduct, neglect of human subjects, and publication fraud. Well, now, hold on. Why is this our problem? In other words, if the Chinese have unethical scientists... Uh, that's that's a Chinese problem, isn't it? Any more than American scientists who are unethical is an American problem. Why are we trying to help them solve their ethics problems, especially considering the rather questionable ethics of the entire upper level of the Chinese Communist government? Yeah, well, we pumped in $70 million since 2008, Lars, into the Chinese equivalent of the Centers for Disease Control, the Chinese CDC, $70 million of our money. So it, it strikes us that we're using China and Chinese virus labs as our back office on gain of function. Well, and that's the crazy part of this, is when you talk about ethical decisions, about the time that Anthony Fauci and his bunch at CDC said they were told by Obama. I mean, it's one of the few things Obama did that I agreed with. He, they said, you can't do yep. this gain-of-function research in America. It's too damn dangerous. So they said, oh, well, if the boss told us we can't do it here, we'll just do it outside the country. That doesn't sound like an ethical decision anyway. Because if they told yep. you it's too dangerous here... Why wouldn't it be just as dangerous and maybe even more dangerous to share it with a, a, a communist opponent? Absolutely. And so now what you have is Senator Ernst, and this is a big victory for transparency, what I'm going to say next, into the National Defense Authorization Act, and this was passed in December and signed by the president. She tucked an amendment, and the amendment forces the Pentagon to do a look back over the course of the last 10 years, they've got 180 days to come up with this audit and disclose it to the American people how much U.S. defense dollars were pumped into Chinese entities, the Chinese Communist Party-owned entities, the Chinese Academy of Sciences, uh, and any other foreign lab uh, virus lab across the entire world. This is a huge win for transparency. This is needed information. The American people need to know every detail of how our taxpayer dollars were used on viruses and to support the Chinese Communist Party. Absolutely right. And the folks who won that victory, along with Senator Joni Ernst, Adam Andrzejewski, and OpenTheBooks.com. Back in a moment. 866. Hey, Lars. Happy President's Day. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network.
I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. No need to adjust your volume. He's just that loud. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on President's Day, Monday on the Radio Northwest Network. If we need more housing quickly in the Northwest, why not do it with tiny homes and ADUs? It's one of the suggestions coming from John Charles at the Cascade Policy Institute. As he points out, you've got the governor of Oregon, Tina Kotek, who's saying, I need half a billion dollars so we can go out and build more housing. I'm going to guarantee you one thing. The way the government spends money on housing, they will not be able to do nearly as much as if you gave the same amount of money to the private sector. But I don't even think we need to go that far. We don't need to give money to the private sector. What you need is government out of the way. And one of the things John Charles points out, and I've complained about it as well, he says, Oregon's urban growth boundaries designed to limit urban growth under SB 1537, cities would be allowed to add, to add tiny amounts of land inside the urban growth boundaries, but only if the proposed development meets strict criteria. In Portland, new neighborhoods will have to have at least 17 housing units per acre. That means more residents living in apartments. Let me do the math for you on that, because I think the math is fascinating. John doesn't do it, but consider this. An acre of land, assuming you don't use any of it for streets, you don't use any of it for sidewalks, what does that give you? Well, the math on that is pretty easy. An acre is about 44,000 square feet. If you divide that acre up into nine pieces, each one is a standard house lot, 50 by 100. But you don't need nine. They say you'll have to have at least 17. That means an average house lot, 50 feet by 100 feet. That's what standard house lot in America. In most of America, standard house lot is 5,000. Uh, there are some substandard lots on which you can build a house with special permission. But if any of you have an average house, 50, and, and you're sitting on a yard that's 50 feet by 100 feet, so 100 feet deep, house sits in the middle, you got a little bit of front yard, you got a little bit of backyard. What they're talking about is half that amount. Half that amount because you have to build twice as much housing on every single acre. That means, at best, it's going to be duplexes, quadplexes, apartment buildings, and things like that. So it means jamming in more space. And John points out one of my favorite points over the years. Oregon is 98% open space. 2% of the land in the state is developed. Now, I had thought the number was a little higher, like 3, 3.5%. 
but more than half the state is owned by the federal government. Those lands remain open space. There is lots and lots of room for low-density housing, which most people prefer. The problem is, and John makes the same point I've made over the years, that urban growth boundaries have done to Oregon and to some extent to Washington what the OPEC oil cartel did. OPEC had a cartel. They said, we're going to limit the supply of oil. We're going to drive the price through the roof. Now, OPEC is not as relevant or not as dangerous as it was back in the 1970s because now we have abundant supplies here in America. We'd have more abundant supplies once Donald Trump gets in and we start drilling again aggressively. But if you say, I want to artificially limit the supply of land. The one thing you're going to do is drive the price through the roof. One of the biggest costs of building housing, either in Oregon or Washington, is land. And yet you say, but we don't have enough land. Why people have filled up the state. As John points out, 98% of the state is open space. Only 2% of it is developed. We've got plenty of space. It took us 150 years and then some since statehood to fill 2% of the state. If we filled another 2% in, say, the next 50 years, and human beings then occupied 4% of the land in the state of Oregon, would that be a bad thing? I would say no. And I'd love to talk to the naysayer who says otherwise. Let's go to John. Hey, John, thanks for listening on the Radio Northwest Network. What's on your mind there, John? Otherwise, you're going to miss your opportunity. Yep. Oh, what was he doing? Oh, I see. Well, we will dump that because you can't talk like that on the radio. Today's poll on X. Should a non-citizen be in charge of running elections? A person, Kelly Wong, Chinese national, who lives in San Francisco, apparently legally, has now been placed on the city's elections commission to oversee elections in which she has exactly zero right to vote. And I've had a few people write to me and say, Lars, where is it that it says you have to be a citizen to vote? And I said, well, you understand that the 15th Amendment says the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. It was written in the days after the Civil War. The 15th Amendment guaranteed African-American men the right to vote. Women's suffrage wouldn't come until the early 1900s. An idea, of course, created by a Republican, Susan B. Anthony, introduced by a Republican member of Congress, and then passed by Republicans as a majority. Were the Democrats in favor of allowing people to vote? Not so much. Black people? Not so much. The Democrats have been the race based party since their very beginnings back in 1829 under Andrew Jackson. Although, if you want to check the Democrats for the way that they behave, do you ever hear them talking about the father of their party, Andrew Jackson? Not so much, no, because Andrew Jackson was an execrable character. Now, in Friday's poll on First Amendment Friday, should pedophiles get the death penalty? Idaho's House of Representatives has a, approved a bill that will do exactly that. I said yes, so did 98%, 92% of you. Only 8% of you said no to the death penalty for convicted pedophiles. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show on President's Day and the Radio Northwest Network. The Lars
With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com.